Welcome to River City 360, views and news from around Winnipeg. My name is Nolan Bicknell. With me, as always, is my co-host, Robert Zirk. On today's show, Mark Reed, the editor-in-chief of Canada's History, joins us to talk about Sounds Like History, a brilliant new podcast that discovers Canada's past through the music of the times. We'll also be joined by Harsha Walia, an activist and journalist who was one of the keynote speakers at The Gathering to talk about inclusion without tokenism and what that means. Then on our Vital Signs report, we'll learn about a new relaxed performance at the Royal Manitoba Theatre Centre that's focused on accessibility to those on the autism spectrum. Then find out how you can make an even bigger difference in Manitoba communities on November 19th as Endow Manitoba launches its 24-hour giving challenge. Denise Campbell of the Winnipeg Foundation will tell us all about how it works and how you can take part. And as always, we'll be speaking with Noah Ehrenberg about This Week in Winnipeg through the lens of Community News Commons' Winnipeg Citizen Journalism Project. All this, some great tunes, and much, much more on today's episode of River City 360. Good morning and welcome to River City 360. Nolan and Robert here with you this morning from beautiful downtown Winnipeg. Uh, it's a, it's, fine. it's still a nice out, I thought. By, by November we would be dealing in snow shoveling terms, but uh, today and all week it's supposed to be really nice out, so I'm, I'm looking yeah, forward to it. It's not going to last forever. Hey, I mean, the optimism, preceding optimism. earlier portion of the week we had quite a bit of rain. It was a little bit on the gloomier That's side true. there was but, not a lot uh, of sun I guess. but it is really nice to have some sunshine coming back um it makes the fall weather you can actually go out and enjoy exactly. some things in the slightly chillier but still not still too bad pleasant. fall weather yeah, yeah exactly well today's show is packed chock full of a ton of content we have got some great conversations coming up uh coming up first mark reed the editor-in-chief of canada's history magazine is going to return to the show uh he was on a, uh, i think in july and uh, he's going to tell us a little bit more about sounds like history which is a new podcast that uh, canada's history launched and it explores songs all the way back from the 1920s and beyond to tell stories of canada's past um this week we're going to be talking about two two oldies oldies but goodies one from 1920 and another from 19 1925 so stay tuned to that you do not want to miss it uh, it's always a great discussion with mark i'm really happy to have him back on the program but first it's the mcguire sisters with does your heart beat for me right here on river city 360 
Thank you for listening to River City 360. Nolan and Robert here with you this morning. And we're now joined in studio by Mark Reed. He's the editor-in-chief of Canada's History Magazine. Mark, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you've been on the show before. The last time we talked about a new feature that you guys launched called Sounds Like History, where you sort of discover... Uh, stories from Canada's past through uh, different songs. So maybe for our listeners who didn't hear that interview a few months ago, tell us why you launched Sounds Like History and sort of what the what the goal is of the project. Sure. Well, Canada's History magazine, uh, used to be called the Beaver Magazine, has been around since 1920, and we've, we've been telling stories in print um, uh, for decades. And we're online, and I think one of the things that's cool about being online is you get to do storytelling in different forms, and one of the ways um, that stories have always traditionally been told in Canada is through music. Whether it's uh, uh, something like uh, Brian Adams or something more obscure or, or old school like Hank Snow. Um, each Each musician from Canada, um, I guess, helps us identify ourselves and the soul of the nation. And so one of the things that I discovered in just noodling around on the web one day was I actually discovered that Library and Archives Canada has this amazing collection of old music. Uh, a lot of it donated. Um, you can think of it just like the old cylinder tube style songs and then the old 45s and, and LPs and every, every form imaginable. And they've been digitizing it. And so they have this beautiful digital um, archive that doesn't get a lot of attention from the public. And so we thought, why, can't we, why don't we partner with Library and Archives, go through some of these great old songs from yesteryear, um, and then share them with the rest of Canada? So the most recent podcast, you talk with archivist uh, Joseph Trivers, I believe, and he sort of breaks down why the songs are historically significant. But um, what, what has been some of the response to people listening to this podcast so far? Like, what has Sounds Like History sort of inspired in your listeners and readers? Well, you know, one thing I like about music is that it takes you back to a time and a place, doesn't it? And, and in a previous episode of the podcast, we had a song from World War I. And of course, World War I was really, uh, and still is, top of mind with, for people because we're right in the middle of that centennial of that terrible war. And a lot of people lost relatives, uh, ancestors to, to that war. And so when you could hear this song um, from the previous podcast, um, I think a lot of people maybe thought about the veterans and their families. Um, you know, and then, of course, there's, there's songs that are a bit more fun, like a couple that we'll be talking about today. Today, where uh, they can just bring a smile to your face. And so people have, have, have really appreciated, I guess, going a little bit deeper than just the top 40 hits that you can hear on the radio right now and going back to the 1900s, the 1910s, the 20s, the 30s, the 40s. And there's a lot of memories, I think, being triggered by this. Absolutely. And a lot of emotion being triggered, probably. You know, you're brought back to a time where things are a little bit different and and. People always like to be to feel that nostalgia, so I think this is a great project that kind yeah. of uh, that inspires that in people. So, but let's get to it. The most recent podcast, you you covered two songs. I like to do it, sung by Billy Murray, and the Devil's Dream by George Wade and the Cornhuskers. Fantastic name. Uh, we'll get to the Cornhuskers in a minute, but first, let's talk about I like to do it. First off, um, what 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 is noteworthy about this song, and why is it uh, historically significant? 
Well, Billy Murray was one of the greatest singers of the uh, 1920s, but he was almost, um, you remember that song, Yakety Yak, Don't oh, Talk yeah, Back? absolutely. Well, he was one of those types of fellows where he was uh, more of a comedian um, as much as a singer, and so he always tried to get a chuckle out of his audience. And so uh, he performed this song that was written by a gentleman named Byron Gay, and the unique thing about this was that it was, although they were both really big in the U.S., this, this recording was specifically made for Canadian audiences okay. and was recorded in 1920 in Montreal. And so I like to do it. Um, um, you imagine the 1920s, that's the age of flappers and freewheeling and then prohibition. And, and uh, everyone was literally just back from the Great War. Mm-hmm. And uh, so many lives had been lost that I, you know, in the jazz age, people really were determined to live as if there was going to be no tomorrow. Right. And so a song like I, I Like to Do It, um, some of your listeners may be saying, thinking, wow, that sounds a bit risque. Yeah, especially and, for that era, definitely. And it was. That is what he was talking about. Now, he does it in a tongue-in-cheek way, and Mm -hmm. there's a lot of innuendo. Um, But uh, it's one of those amazing songs that really shows us that no matter how far we've come from the past, um, some of the things that we are really preoccupied with today were on the minds of the people in 1920s as well. The song, I mean, I like to do it as obviously very uh, forward in what it's sort of intending to be, but there's a lot of weird, not weird, but a different um, language used. Like, I like to vamp or a salty vamp and different sort of phrases that you don't really hear nowadays. Um, Why or what do you think is interesting about the the language that's used. It's kind of like a snapshot in that era. You can see how people talk by then. Why do you think that that's historically interesting? Well, you, you hit it right on the head. You know, I mean, people used to say things like 23 skidoo and they weren't kidding around. <laughs> I mean, that's that's how like they were excited. Whoa, 23 skidoo. Um, I mean, they would say those things. And so in this context, a vamp has two different meanings. Um, it can either mean a literally a woman who seduces men or the act of seducing or flirting. And so when the singer is saying, for instance, you stamp and paw the air while you vamp, vamp, vamp some lady there then what he's really saying is that he's singing about putting the moves on people and really really right. trying to convince them that he's the one that could be Mr. Right now, if not Mr. Right. Uh-huh. It's, it's very cool to see, because, I mean, every generation has its own sort of um, slang for that act of picking up girls or, you know, picking up chicks or whatever you call it nowadays, and it's really cool to see a snapshot of that moment back in the 20s. Yeah. So maybe let's play a little clip from I Like to Do It, sung by Billy Murray right here on River City 360. This is the first verse. The second verse is worse. Whoa, whoa. So that was a clip from I Like to Do It, sung by Billy Murray. We are speaking with Mark Reed. He's the editor-in-chief of Canada's History Magazine. If you want to hear the full version of that song and hear this full discussion that Mark has with archivist Joseph Trivers, you can visit canadashistory.ca slash history. Now, Mark, while the song was playing, we were having a pretty interesting discussion about how the, the language sort of shifted from the 20s, 30s, 40s, and into the 50s. You mentioned something interesting about uh, Paul Ankin, sort of that generation. Why do you think that, the, uh, that this era in the 20s was so much more uh, blatant than maybe a few years later, a few decades later? Yeah, well, you know, I grew up in... in I was 
was born in the 70s, so I grew up in the late 70s, early 80s, and my mom and dad were old school. So I, they had the 45s, and they loved the good time 1950s and early 60s. They weren't into the hippie Beatles. They were into the I Want to Hold Your Hand Beatles. And so I grew up listening to songs like I Want to Hold Your Hand or Paul Anka's Put Your Head on My Shoulder. And you think about Frank Sinatra mooning, looking into someone's eyes and talking about going for a walk along the river. And and I guess um, all that sexuality was, was very veiled and hidden at the right. time. It wasn't so overt. And I think, again, that really does speak um, to, I guess, maybe just the, um, the catastrophic uh, sort of upheaval of the First World War. These were largely men and women who either had, uh, you, know, you know, terrible tragedies in their life. Um, a lot of these men that fought in the trenches, they, they didn't know if any second they were going to be killed. Right. And they might have been naive and all about holding hands and moonlit walks when they went over there. Um, by the end of that war, they were like, no, no, I'm going to seize the day. And I'm going to, if I love this woman, I, I'm going to try as hard as I can to get her. I'm not going to just kind of, uh, you know tiptoe through the tulips, so if you will. And right. I think in this case, um, this is a great example of a comedic um, song that speaks to that uh, to that real um, life-changing event. It's a real interesting glimpse into the sort of uh, collective psyche of that generation because they really did understand that, you know, this could all go away in a flash. So it, the songs kind of um, reflect that. Um, so let's move on to the, the Devil's Dream, which... Uh, I was listening to it before you came into the studio, and it sounds uh, it sounds like something I've heard at a Manitoba social, seeing my uncles and aunts kind of two-stepping around the dance floor. Um, why do you think that this song is historically significant? Well, it's performed by George Wade and his Cornhuskers in 1925. And, uh, you know, again, the, the, the George Wade was one of the biggest country bands in Canadian history at the time. From the 1920s to the 1940s, he was highly in demand. Um, he would uh, tour the country. He played on CBC stations everywhere. And, uh, you know, he would have been um, he would have been a, a, quite a big celebrity at the time. And so that's kind of what makes it uh, significant to us today. Um, you know, it's also, it's a really kind of cool idea, this idea of a reel, because that really does speak to our musical heritage, because the reel originated in Scotland. Right. Um, in fact, I think the very first reference to a reel was from 1590. Wow. And it was a song in reference to these witches that were supposedly haunting um, a part of, of Scotland. And so it, it's, it's really interesting that we in Canada have inherited this centuries-old tradition of this really upbeat um, uh, style of music that just gets your toe tapped. Well, it's kind of, it's, you can see it in modern day, well, maybe like 10 years ago, there was kind of a resurgence for this style of kind of the Scottish or Irish jig almost. And, and it's cool to see that the, it hasn't changed too, too much. Yeah. I, you know, I'm originally from Nova Scotia. And of course, um, I actually have memories of my grandfather taking out the fiddle, never the violin. Right. It's always the fiddle. And mm -hmm. my granny would play the piano and my grandpa would play the fiddle. And when they were kids, um, teenagers and, and in their 20s, I mean, the entertainment was invite all of your friends over for a, uh, a kitchen party and then a dance and everybody would retire to uh, the big living room called the parlor back then um, and my grandpa would play and everybody would sing and people would call out the different dances and I hate to admit they probably had a heck of a lot more fun that's than so, half the kids these days that just looking so cool. at their phones it and doing amazing. you know texting each other I guess yeah. Um, so yeah so I mean the, the real literally um, uh, means to whirl and so in this case, the devil's real, the devil's dream, um, you can just imagine that that feverish, almost hellish pace that you would be getting right. put through when you do this dance. Yeah. Um, so this, the song has two different names. Maybe could you speak to a little bit about why that is and how that came to be? Yeah. Well, I think a lot of these songs, on, you know, if, 
unlike today where, for instance, I'm, I come up with a song and I write it with my buddies and, and uh, we perform it in our garage band or something, um, a, lot of, a lot of these songs, uh, these, these old Scottish fiddle tunes, were sort of um, evolving out of earlier songs, folk songs, uh, that kind of thing. And so this song in itself actually has been called many things, including the deal among the tailors, which means the devil among the tailors. And in talking to the archivist, I was surprised to find out that, that the, actually the devil among the tailors is actually a pub game. That's a derivative of, oh. of of bowling, where you basically set up little tiny things on a on a pub table, and you roll a ball and try to knock them down while you're wow. drinking. And so that's awesome. Th- the archivist I spoke to speaks about this mental image of all these pins getting knocked everywhere and whirling around. And that's sort of what the song does to the dancers when they're dancing this reel as it knocks them and wheels them all around. That's perfect. Well, that I could not have set it up better myself. So here's a clip from 1925's The Devil's Dream by George Wade and his Cornhuskers right here on River City 360. <laughs> That was The Devil's Dream by George Wade and his Cornhuskers. Fantastic name from 1925. Uh, Mark, thank you very much for talking to us today. Um, Maybe for our listeners who want to hear a little bit more about your discussion, uh, where can they go to find more information and how often are these podcasts coming out? Sure. Well, uh, the podcasts are available in lots of different locations. Um, Our website is canadashistory.ca. And then you go backslash sounds like history. But you can also find us on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Um, and uh, yeah, you, uh, it's been a really exciting uh, project with Library and Archives. We're getting ready to record the second season. Uh, we publish in English and in French. Um, and you can find uh, this is the second English episode. There'll be one more English episode this year, and there's three French. And, and I'll be back in Ottawa um, at Library and Archives recording in November. Can't or wait later, to, th- later this month, I, I should say. I can't wait to hear. Thank you very much, Mark Reed, the editor-in-chief of Canada's History magazine. For more information, go to canadashistory.ca slash soundslikehistory. Mark, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Nolan. And as they both mentioned, you can listen to the very latest episode of Sounds Like History by visiting canadashistory.ca forward slash soundslikehistory. Very in-depth conversation, and it's a great listen if you're into the music of the bygone era. Coming up after the break, we recently attended The Gathering, which was a conference held by the Canadian CED Network, and we had the chance to speak with one of the keynote speakers at the event, activist and journalist Harsha Walia. We'll have her interview on the subject of inclusion without tokenism after the break. But first, speaking of music from a bygone era, here's On My Way to Town by Nana Muscuri, right here on River City 360. On my to town, got my money in my secret pocket, on my way to town, until I get there I won't turn around, 
dropping pebbles in my tracks. I will not get lost when I come back. On my way to town, got my lunch tucked in another pocket. On my way to town, and I will only stop to wash it down. Welcome back to River City 360. Robert and Nolan here with you this morning. A couple of weeks ago, RC360 attended The Gathering, an event held by the Canadian CED Network in Manitoba that brought together community builders in a variety of areas. One of the keynote speakers at the event was Harsha Walia, an activist and journalist who spoke on the theme of inclusion without tokenism. In a lot of social change work, you know, one of the different values that guides our work is the idea of inclusion and making sure that we have diversity and representation, which is, you know, just a really good idea. But sometimes in practice, when we're trying to include people, it means that we're, you know, asking people to join us and our ways of conducting work stay the same, right? So we're inviting people into a process that's been predefined, predetermined, already set in our ways. And so for me, it's really important to think about inclusion in a much more expansive way, um, in a bit of a disruptive way, which is how do we make sure that when we're including diverse communities, uh, people with different lived experiences of various forms of oppression, that we're actually taking into account how those communities want to organize, what are people's ideas, how do we make sure that our, our meeting and gathering spaces are inclusive to those experiences. And that's, you know, there's not a simple answer to that, but it really is always being attuned to what kinds of practices are we centering. So it's really stepping back and inviting people into the process from the beginning uh, and really being open to making sure that whatever work and process we're engaging in is including people's kind of full experience from the beginning um, and not as an afterthought. Harsha explained that listening, communicating, and building relationships is at the heart of inclusivity. 
One example she mentioned in particular was the movement to ban the seal hunt, which hadn't looked at how that would affect indigenous communities which rely on seal for food. We have so many examples of well-meaning social change work that has a detrimental impact precisely because people have not been consulted with in a good way. And if those relationships are built, then I think it totally challenges our actual foundational ideas, right? So a lot of environmental work around conservation, for example, has been rightfully challenged by Indigenous people and people of colour to say that actually this conservation work reproduces terra nullius because you're trying to conserve areas and assume that people don't live here um, and assume that there aren't existing practices that are alive on these lands. And so the opposite of that is relationship building, right? So that before we decide that conservation is the campaign, we actually engage in relationships and learn without any preconceived notions of what a right or wrong is, but learn in an open way and in a humble way and build long-term relationships to understand what is it um, that will support communities in self-determination. And instead of going in with an idea of what we want and asking people to join us, it means that we step back and say, hey, what are your ideas, right? What are the things that you need? to support uh, the enhancement of your community and to support your self-determination. And that is built on relationship. It's built on deep conversation. Uh, it's built on not holding assumptions but being open to learning. In her keynote speech, Harsha cited the citizenship test as an example of how structures like assimilation, capitalism, and colonialism are reinforced by only including certain histories and certain cultures in the conversation. Racism is not an exception. It's structural. We are born into it. We're socialized into it. And, you know, intentions matter, but structures aren't about intentions, right? It's about the impact more so. Uh, and so understanding that whether or not we intend to to benefit from racism. Some of us do benefit from the fact that we live in a racist society and some of us disproportionately suffer under it, right? So if we want to change that, that we need to understand that these are systemic issues and that getting the ball rolling on social change means, you know, looking at ways in which we can transform those systems so that they are more equitable. And before we can initiate that change, Harsha mentioned the importance of acknowledging that these structures are ones that we're still living in today. But I think we have to be real that history is not something that's in the past. It's ongoing. That when we're talking about things like racism or patriarchy, you know, when we're, we're listening to the Trump effect, that's not just in the United States, right? And this isn't just about one man or one person or just certain right-wing people, that these are structures that we all live in. And I don't think that that needs to be overwhelming or defensive for people. I think there's something quite liberating about knowing that these are structures that many people have in different ways contributed to building. And also a lot of people have been involved in movements to change those systems, right? A lot of things that were once legal are now illegal and vice versa. And so I think it's really imperative that we're always critically thinking about things. I, I just, I don't have like rose-colored lenses, <laughs> which doesn't mean we can't be optimistic or hopeful, but I think we can find optimism in reality rather than some throwback to a Canada that never has existed. At the same time, understanding history also means learning about and acknowledging the resistance movements and social movements that have made positive changes. For example, all of the different kind of social welfare policies that we assume were just granted by the state, like healthcare or, you know, maternity leave or parental leave or union benefits, those came from struggle. You know, we stand on the shoulders of, of ancestors in, in various forms of struggle who have fought to make things better. And that's also part of legacy, right? Resistance is also a part of our legacy in as much as injustices as well. Thank you very much to Harsha Walia for speaking with us at The Gathering. Next week, we'll hear from another keynote speaker at The Gathering, Karen Joseph, the CEO of Reconciliation Canada. So be sure to tune in.
Thanks, Robert. Coming up after the break, this week's installment of our Vital Signs Report. November, we are going to be focusing on the arts. And our first story is about how the Royal Manitoba Theatre Centre is making one of its shows more accessible to people on the autism spectrum with a relaxed performance. We'll be joined in studio by Angela Broadbent. She's the Education and Community Engagement Manager at RMTC. And she'll tell us all about the show and just exactly what's, what's going to be different in the show that makes it accessible to all. But first, here's Paul Anka and Odia Coates with I Believe There's Nothing Stronger right here on River City 360. I believe there's nothing stronger than our love. I believe there's nothing stronger than our love. When I'm with you, baby, all my worries disappear. Troubles that surround me disappear when you are near. Next year on River City 360, we'll be bringing you stories connected to the themes of Winnipeg's Vital Signs 2017, a program led by the Winnipeg Foundation that measures the vitality of our community through research and surveys. For more information, visit wpgfdn.org slash vital signs.
Thank you for listening to River City 360. Nolan and Robert here with you this morning, and we're now joined in studio by a very special guest. We've got Angela Broadbent. She's the Education and Community Engagement Manager at RMTC, Royal Manitoba Theatre Center. Um, Angela, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. So we wanted to have you in because you have a very interesting performance coming up uh, this, this coming Thursday. But before we get into that, maybe just tell me what RMTC is all about and sort of what your mission is here in Winnipeg. Sure. Um, so the Rural Manitoba Theatre Centre is um, one of the oldest regional theatre companies in Canada. Um, we produce 10 plays a year at the John Hirsch Main Stage and the Tom Hendry Warehouse in the Exchange District. We also produce the Winnipeg Fringe Theatre Festival. So you have kind of a, an eclectic range of shows. Um, how many shows are kind of going on at a time and how many are you preparing for constantly? Uh, Generally this time of year we have a show on stage at the warehouse and a show on stage at the main stage and we're building, preparing the other two shows that are coming up next. So what, what constant, like how do you decide on scripts and how do you discuss, decide on what shows are going to be playing? Um, those decisions are made by our artistic director Stephen Shipper um, and he always is trying to find a balance in terms of the type of shows that we produce. A balance of just the different styles and different stories and, and what, what kind of balance do you mean? Exactly. Um, a balance of different types of theater, of you know, big musicals and small intimate pieces and uh, big crowd-pleasing shows and um, uh, really sharp, interesting theater. Interesting. So you've got The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime coming up. Tell me a little bit about that play. I know it's based on a novel, but what's, what's the story about? Mm -hmm. It's based on a novel by Mark Haddon. It's about a boy named Christopher who sees the world a little bit differently. Um, and he has to solve the mystery of who killed his neighbor's dog, Wellington. Uh, as he tries to solve the mystery, like his hero, Sherlock Holmes, um, he discovers some uncomfortable truths about his family. Interesting. So mm -hmm. no, no spoilers, obviously, but uh, um, how has the show been received thus far in, uh, in its runnings? Uh, overwhelmingly positive response. Cool. Um, so there's a pretty interesting relaxed performance coming up on November 10th. Uh, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. What, what ins first of all, what, what does it mean to have this relaxed performance and what inspired uh, you guys deciding to do something like this? Sure. Um, so a relaxed performance is a performance that um, is modified slightly to be more welcoming to people who are uncomfortable in a normal theater, in a regular theater environment. Um, so that means making slight modifications to the production itself and also to the patron experience. Uh, it's intended to welcome people who are um, on the autism spectrum or people who experience anxiety or have you know, a number of other concerns that make it difficult to sit through a theater performance. So what's going to be different from a, a typical theater performance compared to the relaxed performance on Thursday? Um, in terms of the show itself, it's actually not that much different. The modifications are pretty minor, but they make a big difference um, to a person's experience. Um, so for example, large, um, loud sounds are reduced in volume slightly. Um, Fast-paced visual effects, visual effects will be uh, slowed down a little bit. Um, and more importantly, the house lights, the lights in the theater on the audience will be kept up um, a little bit during the show. So instead of going fully black, they're on so that patrons can exit the theater and re-enter safely if they need a break. And what, how did you figure out all of these uh, conditions and w like what informed your decision making on that? Sure. Um, well, we're actually not the first people to do this um, by a long shot. Um, relaxed performances have been happening in the UK and on Broadway and in some places across Canada for the last couple of years, although they're a new phenomenon. 
Um, so we partnered with the Theatre Development Fund, um, which is an organization out of New York that is, um, their mission is to create theatre that's more accessible. So they have a program called the Autism Theatre Initiative, which provides free consultation to theatres across North America, um, giving them a how-to guide to put on a relaxed performance. And and so you kind of just consulted with them and they told you the different sort of things. Did, did, did you choose this place specifically because it was able to be... Um, augmented for this or is it just was a sort of happy medium and um, there's, there's a couple of reasons there um, this um, is a play and a book that has been strongly associated with autism so I think it's important to be able to have uh, a dialogue with um, people who are on the autism spectrum and it's difficult to do that if they don't feel welcome in our theater um, so it was important to do that because of the subject matter of the show um, and there have been relaxed performances of The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime um, on Broadway and in the UK, which um, when I was researching the play, I found those performances and was inspired um, by those experiences in order to have one here in Winnipeg. Very cool. Um, so it's probably very important for the people that are coming to this relaxed performance to see someone on stage that maybe they can relate to and they, it's, mm -hmm. it's more of a... A relatable experience. Um, what has been sort of the uh, response in within your organization when you decided to pitch this and, and change things up a bit? How are people responding to the relaxed performance internally? Internally, um, so it was probably eight months ago when I first mentioned this idea at a senior staff meeting and without question everyone said yes. Uh, there was 100% support from the beginning. Uh, so it's been a really positive experience for us. And internally, I know there's a number of staff members and um, our designers on the show have also done um, performances like this at other organizations. And so we have a lot of knowledge on staff already. Very cool. It's probably um, a bit of a rewarding experience to, to be able to share the uh, theater experience with people who wouldn't normally get to experience it. Exactly. It's about breaking down those barriers and welcoming people who might not otherwise um, come to the theater through our doors. That's great. So for anyone listening right now that would have someone that could be potentially interested in a performance like this, how do they uh, get tickets? How do they find more information? Sure. So tickets are open to anyone um, in the general public. You can purchase tickets online at royalmtc.ca. Um, you're also welcome to call our box office. Um, the phone number is 204 942-6537. Um, tickets start at 26.50 and we have a new program actually for people who are between the ages of 18 and 30. It's called TD Theatre Under 30 um, so they can purchase tickets for $20 by joining that program. Perfect. The price is right then definitely. Exactly. Awesome. Well thank you very much Angela Broadbent. She is the Education and Community Engagement Manager at Royal MTC. Really appreciate your time. Thank you for talking to us today. Thanks for taking the time. Stay tuned to River City 360 throughout the year for more stories connected to Winnipeg's Vital Signs 2017, a program led by the Winnipeg Foundation that measures the vitality of our community through research and surveys. For more information about Vital Signs, visit wpgfdn.org slash vital signs. Thanks, Nolan. Coming up after the break, Denise Campbell from the Winnipeg Foundation will join us here in studio to talk about the upcoming Endow Manitoba 24-hour giving challenge that's taking place on November 19th. But first, 
Seeing as how community foundations are often working together, we've got Paul Weston with Together right here on River City 360. Good morning and welcome to River City 360. Robert and Nolan here with you this morning, and we are now joined by Denise Campbell. She is the Funds Administration Specialist at the Winnipeg Foundation. Denise, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Well, thank you for inviting me. So we're here to talk about the different community foundations that are all throughout Manitoba. There are 54 now in the province. Could you share with us a few stories of some of the impact or some of the recent grants that some of these smaller foundations have made in their communities? A lot of the community foundations want to improve their communities as a whole. A lot of them do a lot of downtown beautification as in the early days, like when they're first starting up, they want to make their towns more appealing. So they start working on improving playgrounds a number of them are trying to preserve the culture in their town and, and a lot of their local history. Now, one that really comes to mind is Treehern. They have a very famous glass bottle house that used to be on the outskirts of town. So what they did is the Community Foundation, along with a, a number of other groups in the area, got together and they made it 
possible for that to be moved in town into a beautiful little park so that everybody can enjoy it. So that's kind of a, you know, a little bit of a, a flavor of what they do. Now, if you want to find out more about those, you can go to the Endow Manitoba website and take a look at all of the different foundations. When you click on their link, a lot of them have provided lists of local things that they've done and, and who they've granted to. And speaking of Endow Manitoba, mm-hmm. uh, the 24-hour giving challenge is coming up. You bet. There was one held last year that raised quite a bit of money for Manitoba Community Foundations, and it's happening again this year on Saturday, November 19th. Yes. That's the day from midnight to midnight, 24 yep. hours to uh, to make a gift online. And there's also the opportunity to have some of those gifts stretched by the Winnipeg Foundation as well. Could you tell us a little bit about the 24-hour giving challenge and how that all works? Yeah. Last year, we were really impressed. We raised like a half a million dollars. Wow. In 24 hours. It was, and there was like 45 community foundations. There was 50 at the time in the province, and 45 of them received gifts through uh, on that day. Now, some of them received a few more gifts than others, but some had big events that they were holding so that they were attracting more gifts in. And a lot of the ones that participated last year are getting really geared up for this year. Now, the stretch is the Winnipeg Foundation will give up to $2,000 in matching at a 5 to 1 rate. So for the first $10,000 it's raised, we can give up to $2,000 per community foundation. So we're hoping that we can double the amount that was raised last year. That'd be excellent. Hopefully all the community foundations in Manitoba can take advantage of that. And hopefully there's a lot of support that'll be showing for them on that day. Anyone that makes a gift for the Endow Manitoba 24-hour giving challenge, that has to go into a unrestricted community fund, right? It can't be for a specific type of granting. It has to be just a general community building. Exactly. It has to go in so that the board of that local community foundation has the discretion of how, what to how, what, what to grant to. So they're going to be receiving in grant applications this year. So the income from that fund is going to go to the local granting. So people can make their gifts online through endowmanitoba.ca. Yes. yes. And as you mentioned, last year there were some community foundations that were holding events. I know there were events going on in Morden and Gimli. Are there similar events taking place? Do you know of a few that are happening this year? The best thing that I can say to you is go to your local Community Foundation's website and take a look because they're all popping up different things. Like I do know that, you know, West Shore is still going to be doing a fundraising day. Selkirk's going to be doing a fundraising day. Pinawa, Winkler, you know, like there's just so many of them that are going to be doing something on that day. And the one thing that we did change last year was that we were allowing the community foundations to collect checks on that day as long as a check was made out to the Winnipeg Foundation and dated you know the day of the challenge so it just gives them an opportunity because we do know that there's still a lot of people that don't like to go online but we do encourage the online giving because you instantly get a tax receipt and uh, it makes our makes all the process a little bit slicker How can people learn more about their hometown community foundation or any of the upcoming events? Where's the best place for them to find information on the 24-hour giving challenge or their hometown foundation? I keep saying go to the Endow Manitoba website. So it's endowmanitoba.ca. 
there is a list of all the community foundations across Manitoba. Within there, you can click on those the, the foundation links. You can see all kinds of information about what the foundation is doing. There's also a link in there to the local foundations, their local website. The other thing is, too, is look them up on Facebook. There's 13 community foundations that have actually made a Facebook uh, page. So if you're if you're on Facebook, just search for the, your local foundation, and they're actively posting right now what they're going to be doing during the uh, the challenge. That's great, and a yeah. great way to keep up with all of the wonderful things that are going on in all the different Manitoba communities. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much, Denise, for joining me this morning. Again, Endow Manitoba's 24-hour giving challenge that is taking place Saturday, November 19th. So if you've ever considered making a gift to support your hometown community foundation, that is the day you want to do it. Saturday, November 19th. The website address is endowmanitoba.ca and you can also go there to find links to your hometown community foundation and how you can get in contact with them or how you can support them on the day of the 24-hour giving challenge. Denise, thank you again so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to River City 360. Nolan and Robert here with you this morning. And we're now joined in studio by Noah Ehrenberg. He's the convener of Community News Commons, Winnipeg's Citizen Journalism Project. Noah, thank you for joining us. It's always a pleasure to be here. Well, when we get together, we talk about what's happening in Winnipeg through the lens, through the very unique lens of Community News Commons. And what Um, a unique lens it is. It really is. Um, (laughs) I think it started to, it started you're you're kind of ahead of the curve when it comes to uh, modern journalism and how things are kind of shaping out. Tell our listeners, just in in thirty seconds or less, what exactly Community News Commons is and does. Well, thirty seconds or less. Yeah, that's all you get. Sorry <laughs> okay. about that. Community News Commons. You can find it online at communitynewscommons.org or um, cncwpg.org. takes you to, takes you to the same place. Essentially, it's a citizen journalism project of the Winnipeg Foundation, and we uh, engage and we train hundreds of citizens in Winnipeg uh, in the art of telling multimedia stories. So they can write articles, they can take photos. Uh, basically, these are stories, that, uh, meaningful stories that they care about from their neighborhood, and I help them as their editor. I help them tell those stories and then publish them online as an online journalism portal. So let's get into the, the philosophy of why. Why is this the next generation or the next iteration of journalism? Well, I think if you look at what's happening with journalism today, uh, traditional commercial journalism, as we've known it for a long time, is having a very difficult time um, making it in in this day and age, especially with the uh, advent of the Internet uh, and uh, what it has done to traditional journalism. And so what we have now is a situation where a lot of, or well, some nonprofit, uh, collaborative, cooperative, um, non-commercial journalism is starting to uh, to emerge, and essentially, uh, it's um, voices of the people, uh, well, by the people for the people. Right. It's, a, it's sort of like what the internet is all about, and what we're trying to do is take those voices and take those stories and then uh, curate them on our website, communitynewscommons.org. And essentially what it does for um, for the people of Winnipeg is it gives them an, a different snapshot of some of the stories that people are looking at in their neighborhoods. And it kind of cuts out the middleman in a way, you know, like the sure, traditional media middleman who's sort of been the gatekeeper to the stories of our communities. 
Yeah, it's just straight from the horse's mouth. For sure. And that's kind of like the way TV is going now. Yeah. You know, the, you, you get rid of the broadcast and you just have Netflix, you know. Um, but, you, you know, don't get me wrong here. I think there is a place for traditional journalism. And I think that it is a public trust that we should all preserve and we should uh, really support. fight to support. For sure. Uh, the unfortunate thing is that it's very difficult as traditional uh, journalism entities like the Winnipeg Free Press or any of those uh, number of different um, of uh, publications out there to survive. And so... Um, you know, while that's going on, I think it's important to understand that there's people that want to, uh, you know, build their capacity as a communicator and uh, tell stories from their neighborhoods. And so we, we provide the opportunity for them to do it. Not only do we do it on a daily basis where I, you know, help people uh, basically uh, uh, report their stories, but I also do uh, workshops uh, every spring and fall with uh, CNC uh, participants, and we do that at the Millennium Library and at the uh, Winnipeg Free Press Cafe. And, and we're in the fall right now. What what's the next uh, what's the next workshop that you guys are that you're that you're teaching people about? Well, we're uh, pretty much halfway through, and uh, and you don't uh, have to go to all the workshops. You can just pick and choose. But so people can still uh, show up to the new next. Oh ones? yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, next week's very exciting. Tuesday evening at the uh, Millennium Library, uh, we are going to do a editorial session on audio storytelling. So basically. Cool. Uh, uh, what is audio podcasting and uh, how do you tell stories uh, using the um, the technology of uh, audio podcasting? And in it's order huge to do that? now. Oh, my podcasting goodness. Podcasting is gigantic. People, you know, I remember with the discussion uh, 10, 20 years ago, uh, radio's dead, you right. know. Not a chance. Not quite. <laughs> so we're going to look at, uh, that's a six, uh, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. over at the second floor and hang room of uh, the Millennium Library uh, on Tuesday, November the 8th. And then on Wednesday, the following day, over at the Winnipeg Free Press Cafe, we're going to uh, do some advanced writing. And so it's nice. uh, essentially a uh, uh, it's a workshop that looks at um, sort of the uh, little, takes a little bit of a deeper dive in terms of uh, how to get your writing uh, a little more professional than, uh, than, than what it is. And, and people can come to one or both, or either or both? They can come to whichever ones, because we keep going. Next, uh, The following week on Tuesday, we do a, a second audio workshop on the technical aspects of editing your audio stories. And then on the um, Thursday evening, November the 17th, at uh, the Free Press Cafe, we finish off the advanced writing uh, session uh, at 6 p.m. Uh, on November the 17th. And then the last week, we're going to do um, at the library on Tuesday, the 22nd of November, social media and effective marketing of your writing. Very or cool. Of your journalism. And then the last date, which is Thursday the 24th, over at the Free Press Cafe, we're basically going to look at all the great stories that um, CNC nice. reporters have been telling, and we're going to start our monthly meetings. Oh, Essentially, nice. we're going to meet with everybody uh, once a month. Uh, last Thursday of every month, we're going to start doing that, and this will be our first one. And just to dis- discuss potential story ideas and wh- who's working on what, and maybe if there can be some community collaboration exactly. among people. So at the end of our time together, Noah, um, I've asked you to bring in a local band. Um, pretty much, we've been doing this for a few a couple months now and it's really cool, it's cool. To, to experience sort of the, the local Manitoba talent and you've kind of got a, a good ear to the ground when it comes to that stuff so what have you brought for us this week? Well this week is one of my favorites you know uh, Manitoba like you say has so much great talent in fact one of our uh, favorite uh, singer-songwriters that uh, was Tom Cochran just had a highway named after him. That's right. <laughs> From Leaf Rapids there. Life is a highway. <laughs> uh, but uh, I'm not offering you Tom Cochran this week. <laughs> uh, this week I'm, I would like to 
uh, focus on Scott Nolan, who is a an acclaimed singer-songwriter. And um, he plays in a number of different places uh, uh, around Winnipeg and around uh, uh, Canada and the United States. Um, his uh, recent album that uh, was released uh, earlier this year is called Silver Hill, and it's a terrific album. And there's a song on it that uh, I'd really like to feature this week. It's called Fire Up. So this is Scott Nolan with Fire Up on CGNU 93.7 FM. That old guitar under the stairs My auntie left it there Down to the basement I would crawl I could still hear Grandpa's call Sunglasses and blue jeans Those pretty eyes of green Beehive hairdos and beetle bug cars Oh Lord, I see stars So fire up Play some old time rock and roll Turn to noise and greasy ducktail rockabilly boys. Rag top down, so lonely without you. Remember, sweet Lorraine, how we play that song over again and again and again. That's a wrap on this week's episode of River City 360. Thank you so much for listening, and a huge thank you to all of our guests who joined us in studio and for talking to us today. If you'd like to hear more views and news from around Winnipeg, listen to any of our past episodes, or subscribe to our podcast, you can do so online. Visit us at rivercity360.org. Again, that's rivercity360.org. River City 360, views and news from around Winnipeg, is a project of the Winnipeg Foundation in partnership with CJNU 93.7 FM. And we'd love to hear your feedback about the show. Please give us a call. Our listener line is open 24-7, so just leave us a message at 204-944-9474, extension 360. You can leave us a comment about the show, request a song, or suggest a topic that you'd like to hear discussed on a future show. Again, that is 204-944-9474, extension 360. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching at RiverCity360 on Twitter and RiverCity360 on Facebook as well. I'm Nolan Bicknell signing off for River City 360. And I'm Robert Zirk. Thank you again so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Have a great Sunday.